So uh, welcome everybody and uh, to the Two Age Sojourner podcast. And I'm Andre, pastor of Bethesda Baptist Church in Felixstowe, and this is Nick in Covenant Grace Baptist Church in Timaru. You had to think about that for a moment. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Heavy weekend. Heavy weekend of ministry. Definitely. I can't believe you're preaching three times on a Sunday. That's yeah, man. Real pastors preach more than once on a Sunday. <laughs> Well, I would have been able to join you in that, but at the moment, I'm, <laughs> so I'm just going to remain quiet. Um, yeah, so we are a podcast that is committed to Two Kingdom, Reform, Kleinian, Reform Baptist, kind of worldview stuff, looking at the exploration of the Christian life between the ages. And um, uh, the music that you have heard and enjoyed comes from, what's the guy's name again? Nick? Jerry Costello. I always want to say Andrew in the Jeremy, Jeremy Casilla. Yeah. Jeremy Casilla. We just call him Jerry. Yeah. yeah. Jerry for Jerry to those who know. <laughs> and then um, he's very kindly allowed us to use his music. And do go check him out at Indelible Grace. You can get it on Spotify and iTunes and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, go check out uh, Jeremy Casilla. And we're going to continue in our conversation about baptism. But obviously, we, we started something uh, when Mike could make it. Uh, where we're going through the, the Catholic Encyclopedia and its entry on baptism and just uh, sort of getting our heads around that. And so Nick's going to take us through that as we keep going. So over to you, Nick. Cool, man. Well, just maybe a, a quick uh, recap on what we've been looking at. So the entry on baptism has 16 points. So we've covered the statement of the doctrine. We've covered the etymology. We've covered definition. We've covered baptism as a type. We've covered the institution of baptism. We've covered matter and form. And we've also looked at conditional baptism and rebaptism, which brings us to the hearty topic of the necessity of baptism. Mm. Okay, so uh, as they map it out, they talk about two categories of necessity. They talk about uh, the necessity of means and the necessity of precept. So the necessity of means indicates that if something is lacking, salvation cannot be attained. Okay. So necessity of means is necessary for salvation. Necessity of precept is necessary for obedience. So this is uh, when a thing is so necessary that if voluntarily omitted, that's sin. Ignorance is excusable, but if, you, if it's a command and you don't do it, it's a sin. So according to the Roman Catholic teaching, baptism is a necessity of means and precept. It's necessary for salvation and obedience. And mm, uh, the reform okay. view, of course, is different to that. We believe how, that it's necessary. How, how's for, the reform view different? We believe that it's necessary for obedience, but not necessary for salvation. Mm -hmm. We believe that because it's a command, every good Christian would uh, obey it. But uh, we do not believe that it's necessary for salvation. The, the thing that I find slightly annoying, though, when I'm encountering people about, you know, who haven't been baptized, who clearly are believers and yet they haven't been baptized. And then they say something like, well, why do I have to be baptized? I'm like, well, well, because <laughs> it's commanded. Said, like you, you must, you must be baptized. So, saying, so you're saying that I have to be baptized. Yes, you have to be baptized. So you're yeah. saying that I won't be saved if I, if I'm not baptized. No, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that, it, but you still have to be baptized. So they're saying, so I can be saved if I'm not baptized. So I'm like, yeah, well, you know, it kind of, you know, depends me, yeah. And, uh, and so they're like, oh, then I don't have to be baptized. So I kind of feel like I get a little bit annoyed when people, I guess they're kind of merging those two things together. They're yeah. saying that actually the necessity for obedience and necessity for salvation are the same sort of thing. And so they're thinking, if I don't have to do it, I don't have to do it. And, I, and sometimes it's like, it's like just because just because it's not going to determine your eternal salvation necessarily, um, doesn't mean that you should view it as an optional, <laughs> optional extra. You know? Yeah. Uh, sure. Do you ever encounter stuff like that? Totally. I mean, it's all over the place these days. Where uh, you you take the main thing and make it the only thing. So now there yeah. are no secondary things. Yeah. And uh, you know, if it's if it's only about the gospel, if it's only about salvation, the main thing's the only thing, and all secondary things be damned. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, and there's a lot of that. And I guess the, the intention behind it is to not divide over silly things as perhaps yeah. evangelicals did in the past. You know, it's trying to, it's trying to make up for that. Um, 
and to to unite over central things but this kind of important versus unimportant distinction doesn't work but let me let me just push a bit further back so are we are we creating a space by disagreeing with uh the roman catholic theology of of um you know, necessary Destiny for for obedience, yeah. but not necessary for salvation. If we if we're creating that sort of space, are we not creating an opportunity for people to say obedience is not necessary for salvation? Well, that would be the accusation mm. from the Roman Catholics. But we yes. would say, but that, I, but to be fair, say, that is no a legitimate means. attitude I've encountered. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And we sympathize that it's a possible critique, but we say with Paul, by no means. Mm, yeah. The reality of grace and grace's abusability doesn't mean that grace isn't still grace. Right. So, right. so yeah. but they're saying, they're saying something more than, um, you know, the baptism is a necessary obedience and obedience is necessary for salvation. They're saying something more than that. Aren't they? Yeah. So they have two types of necessity and they tick both boxes. So let's just map out why they think it's necessary for salvation. And once again, as we've noted in the past, John three, verse three to five, mm -hmm. where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, this is taken as a categorical statement, which embraces both adults and infants. So uh, anathemas are then pronounced against those who say that baptism is not necessary for salvation Enter Trent at that point. So, justification cannot be obtained without the washing of regeneration or at least the desire for it. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. the baptism of desire, we'll talk more about that later. Yep, yep. Uh, but then they quote Augustine. Listen to this. If you wish to be a Catholic, do not believe nor say nor teach that infants who die before baptism can obtain remission of sin. And then he adds this. Whoever says that even infants are vivified in Christ when they depart this life without the participation in the sacrament, both opposes the apostolic preaching and condemns the whole church, which hastens to baptize infants because it, the church unhesitatingly believes that otherwise they cannot possibly be vivified in Christ. So they're just bringing in the big heavyweight of Augustine to prove that it's absolutely necessary for salvation. Wow. I, I, I have a, a, a sort of a, a friend of the family who's Roman Catholic in, in Ireland. And um, they wouldn't leave their house until they got their newborn baby baptized. You know, yep. just out of fear of like the only risk they would take was the car journey on the way to the Catholic church to have their kid baptized. They, they wouldn't take, <laughs> you know, it, because if, it, if anything happens... You know, it just, it's, it's, although I don't understand like cause surely that, that statement gets qualified by other statements to do with, well, if you're driving yeah. on the way to the thing to be yep. baptized, there, there will be some more qualification that'll yeah. come up in a later point. Yeah. But uh, because of this necessity of means, the necessity for salvation. So laymen are allowed to perform baptisms. Women are allowed to perform baptisms. Even the parents, if the child is about to die are allowed to perform the baptism. So that's why, right, right. given this necessity, others can now step in and perform the right. I was, I was by the way, on the back of our last conversation, I, I heard this um, thing with, with Athanasius. When Athanasius was a kid, um, him and his buddies were sort of playing church together. Um, and and they, were, they were sort of doing baptisms on each other. But they were using the actual form. So one of the bishops sort of ran over to them and said, you realize <laughs> that we've that. all just baptized each other, you know, so maybe you should find a different game. And, and they, and from that day, those kids were considered to be, to be baptized, baptized because they used the right form. And even though they were just I playing baptized a game. The, yeah. 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 So I just thought that was an interesting way to sum up. It was pretty much in a nutshell. I wonder how many little Roman Catholic kids have been playing church out there and, and how many unknown <laughs> baptisms they've been, you know? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. So uh, that's the Roman Catholic view on necessity. Mm -hmm. So then uh, the next point they give us is substitutes for the sacraments. And this is where they have a few subcategories. And uh, here they have three different types of baptisms that are acknowledged. There's the baptism of water, the baptism of desire, mm -hmm. and the baptism of blood. Mm 
The first is the only sacrament, the baptism in water. That's what we're talking about now. But the other two can stand in as substitutes, conveying the same grace as water baptism when water baptism is impossible. Mm-hmm. Okay. So firstly, baptism of desire. So it opens up with this statement, just defining the nature of works. It says, a perfect contrition of heart and every act of perfect charity or pure love of God that contains, uh, it contains at least implicitly a desire for baptism. So in other words, if you are pursuing obedience towards God with perfect love and perfect obedience, that there is an implicit desire to obey the Lord and implicitly baptism. All right. So just by being a very good Catholic, there is an implicit desire for baptism. So this covers a multitude of sins in one, in one way. If you fail to get baptized before you die, etc., etc. Now in Latin, this baptism is called the baptismus flaminus because flamen is also a title for the spirit. And it is the spirit who inflames the love for God in our hearts and who conceives penitence towards sin. So if you have the spirit working within you, and the spirit also works all the other things related to salvation, uh, the effectiveness of water baptism is credited to this baptism of desire or this baptism of spirit. Let me, let me share with you the uh, scriptural basis. So John 14 verse one, 21, wait for it. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now, love has a soteriological uh, weight. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. So by this, it is understood that justifying grace is promised for acts of charity or contrition. Because if you love God, he'll love you. If you love God, Christ will manifest himself to you. And that's taken to be all that would be bound up in the effectiveness of water baptism given to you because of your love towards God. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it is held that anyone who does these deeds would also be willingly baptized if, if possible. And of course, this would only apply to adults, not infants. So that's the baptism of desire. Oh, wait, so that doesn't apply to infants? No, because they, they don't have the ability to desire or do other works of perfect charity. So this is, this is baptism of desire is right. uh, a loophole for adults who aren't able to get baptized. Interesting. So what about adults who haven't been able to baptize their children? We'll come to that later. Oh, okay. All right. I've got a whole section on infants, so we'll we'll deal with it then. (laughs) All right. Um, Baptism of blood. So, uh, and I'm quoting now, the obtaining of the grace of justification by suffering martyrdom for the faith of Christ. Yes. So that's the baptism of blood. Yeah. So if you you give your life for Christ, that's automatic. Boom. No. Automatic. So Tertullian called this a washing of blood, distinct from the washing with water. Yep. So if a person dies as a martyr without baptism, their death stands in its place, offering the same effectiveness. So the biblical justification for this, so where is, where is this found in the Bible? You ready for it? Here it comes. I'm ready. Matthew 10, Matthew 10 verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And verse 39 Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So that's obviously speaking about justification. Um, Mm. And this would include, this would include, so if you you have an infant who's already been christened or or baptized as a Christian, and those infants are killed as Christians, um, it would apply to them as well. So babies can die as martyrs if they're killed because they're Christian. And so for this reason, Augustine said, don't pray. You can pray for the dead, but don't pray for the martyrs. No. Yeah. Well, they've, because they've, it's basically, it's not just the automatic baptism, it's automatic sainthood, isn't it? If you, if you get martyrs, it's just a one way ticket. No No wonder Origin wanted that. Yeah. No purgatory, therefore no necessity of prayers for the dead. Yeah. Huh. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Really interesting. But 
and and this you could see how this kind of way of thinking arose out of you know that intense persecution in the 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 early church you can see how the church was grappling with this issue and what do you do with guys who 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 sort of denied the faith under intense persecution what do you do with guys who were martyred and how do we view them and and all that kind of thing all these sort of questions you could you could just see the kind of grappling and just because they hadn't quite drawn the same doctrinal um you know or connected the dots in the same way that that we would have later on or even the way that the catholic church would have later on you can see yeah, there's kind sure. of like unfinished thoughts i mean to be fair, I, I mean, again, I, I can see how, I can see how they, they would arrive at that looking at a passage, say, for example, in Mark, you know, if you give your life, you will, if you save your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life, you'll save it. You know, I've yeah. been in Bible studies where Protestants, you know, in, in the 21st century have been, have been sort of uneasy with that. And it, it seems to be saying that yeah. in order to save my life, I have to do something to lose it. And so, you know, I can kind of understand how this sorts of, this sort of thing arises, even if I don't agree with it. You know? Yeah, we would say that it's uh, descriptive, not prescriptive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you do, I mean, that's, that's it's a big point for how you're going to read sort of those lists of people who don't inherit the kingdom and so on you know if you make that prescriptive then suddenly the whole the whole gospel unravels the whole gospel's again. gone but exactly. isn't it scary though how you find that in in reformed writings as well as in anywhere else so i mean it's not yep, only they, a problem they, of course i mean I guess as reformed people we can sometimes have a little liberty in the way we talk because the yes. framework that we're setting it in protects yeah. us yes yeah so yeah. No, that, I mean, that's true. That's true. If you're assuming yeah. everyone understands what you mean about yeah. justification and that, and that all that that's in place. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. If you read the Puritans, sometimes it can be profoundly misleading. Uh, you yeah. know. Like everyone who commits suicide automatically goes to hell. Stuff like that. That kind of stuff. And on that note, let's move to the next point. Mm. Uh, unbaptized infants. Okay, let's do it. All right. So here's all those questions about what ifs regarding infants. So Catholic teaching has been uncompromising on this point that all who die unbaptized, either by a baptism of desire or a baptism of blood or a baptism of water mm -hmm. are perpetually excluded from the vision of God. So that's a categorical statement. Wow. Now infants who die in original sin without actual sin, are deprived of the happiness of heaven. And now there's a whole bunch of qualifications that begin to enter in, in here. Now, there have been differences on the exact state of the souls of infants who die, who haven't been baptized. So here are some of the views. Some theologians have made a distinction between the pain of loss and the pain of sense. The pain of loss is the loss of the vision of God. In other words, they don't get to see heaven. The pain of sense would be what we understand to be the eternal conscious torment aspect. Some say that infants, others say that infants do suffer the pain of loss, but not uh, the pain of sense. Okay. So they, they, they suffer in the sense that they don't go to heaven, but they don't suffer in the sense that they're actually afflicted in any way. Yeah. It's, one it's, it's more just that they've missed out. Yep. Um, some say they do suffer the pain of sense, but it's the least amount possible. So it would just be a niggling discomfort. All right. Another opinion has held that infants do not go to heaven, but they still have the fullness of natural, but not spiritual happiness. Hmm. So these are all the different uh, levels and qualifications that enter in to try and make the fact that unbaptized infants don't go to heaven seem a little nicer. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. So others would pour in a little more grace at this point. Here's another opinion. Other theologians point to the law of Moses and how the parents' actions saved the infant. So they're, they're, they're looking at circumcision and those sorts of actions as saving. And that this would be magnified under the law of Christ. So the new covenant has more grace than the old covenant. Here's a quote. Supernatural faith is now much more diffused 
than it was before the coming of Christ. And more infants are now saved by baptism than were justified formerly by the active faith of their parents. So the active faith of their parents was, at, was, was saving the kids. And there's, there's just more sunshine in the new covenant to, to affect more salvation. So there's, you, should, you, should, you should be feeling a, a great, we've come into a wonderful time, yes. of great blessing. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, there shouldn't be any real fears about infants and, and that, that sort of thing. So that sounds a lot like it's interesting that they're say, sort of moving from saved by faith in the past to saved by baptism <laughs> now, isn't and it? They wouldn't, they wouldn't be the only ones. We've, uh, we've noticed that with some of the, uh, That's right, yeah. the development in Fesco. Yeah. And again, these are just opinions. These are, yeah. So at this point, what, what, the, what the article does, it just shares all the different ways in which people have wrestled with the issue. And we'll get to the formal statement just now. Um, so it's also added that the vision of God, and we'd agree with this, the vision of God, you know, being in God's presence is not a right. And therefore it is not unjust to exclude infants from it for it is a gift of which original sin has robbed the right of all to have. Well, I guess I'd agree to that to some extent. Yeah. So that's, there's an aspect of overlap we'd have. And baptism, of course, comes into play and baptism removes that bar out of the way. The bar of original sin is removed. And so infants have automatic access. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I'd probably agree with that statement, too, with a whole heap of caveats stuck into it. So, like, you know, as in so long as there is faith and, yeah. you know. And because so. there are so many caveats, it's just not worth saying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I probably would never say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> you make a wrong statement to kill with the death of a thousand qualifications. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, on the question of, is there any positive happiness for the inf infant? Once again, a multitude of opinions, no agreement. And it, it, this is important. No official pronouncement by the church. Okay. Aquinas said that they felt no loss at the loss of the vision of God because they didn't know what they were losing out on, but that they would also still be able to enjoy some happiness. Now the editor at this point says, well, look, the catechism of 1992, the Roman catechism, here's the official statement. Mm -hmm. As regards children who have died without baptism, the church can only entrust them to the mercy of God as she does in her funeral rites for them. Yeah. Indeed, the great mercy of God who desires that all men should be saved and Jesus tenderness towards children, which caused him to say, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, allows us to hope that there is a way of salvation for children who have died without baptism. All the more urgent is the church's call not to prevent little children coming to Christ through the gift of holy baptism. So it's a pretty optimistic view. It is. Yeah. Surprisingly considered the list of options that we were going through just before. Yeah. This. So those are just the yeah. development of thought, but this yeah. is the 1992 category. Yeah. I've, I read that a little while ago and, um, and actually I think that's a pretty good statement to be honest. I, 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 I think that that's well balanced and I, I, I agree with that. And I think I would say something similar. I know that there are other views that would, that would, uh, you know, necessarily include infants and children, but I, I've always opted for the, for the, what uh, I think is the, the, you know, positive agnostic view. Well, we'll, we'll not the judge of the earth do what is right. So, you exactly. know, the positive agnostic. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know for sure, but we have a confidence. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think yeah. that's, I think that is the safest if you're, if you're not wanting to take any chances to give any kind of false optimism. Yeah. I think that is the safest biblical view you can take, but I do accept that there are good reasons for wanting to, to take it further, you know? Yeah. Now we'll take it further. Yeah. All right. So disciplinary acts against the unbaptized. So if you die and you are not baptized, you may not receive Catholic funeral rites. But if a catechumen dies before they're baptized, because they have the baptism of desire, they were probably going to get baptized. They should be seen as part of the faithful. And then regarding baptism and marriage, a Catholic may not marry an unbaptized person without dispensation. In other words, you can apply for permission. So let's say you, you need to have a shotgun wedding because you got someone pregnant. <laughs> there may be a special dispensation. 
Um, if you don't get the spe special dispensation, you do run the risk of nullity. But uh, uh, th that sort of a marriage would not automatically be uh, nullified. It would have to be positively investigated and then a positive law given to, to, for a nullification to take place. So it would be seen as a marriage until it was nullified. And um, in order to get a dispensation, the non-Catholic partner would have to agree not to interfere with the faith of the Catholic. In other words, allow them to yeah. go to church, allow them to bring up their children uh, in the Catholic church, baptize their children and so on. So, hmm. yeah. Yep. Fair enough. Yep. I, I, I totally get it. I totally get why they do that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 obviously again, it's building on a system and I think it's consistent with that system. So, you know? Yeah. Alrighty. Next point the effects of baptism. Mm -hmm. What does baptism do? There we go. So firstly, the remission of all sin, original and actual. As clearly taught in Acts 2 verse 38, Acts 22 verse 16, Ephesians 5 25, and Ezekiel 36 25, which is speaking of baptism. Okay. So they bring in scripture at that point. And Trent would follow up and anathematize anyone who disagrees. And it is claimed that there is a unanimous tradition among the fathers on this point. Okay. And that's probably not far off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If it's not unanimous, many of it's the close to it. Yeah. 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 Many, many of the fathers did have that sort of view. All right. So that's the first effect. Remission of all sin, original and actual. Second effect. Remission of temporal punishment. In other words, any judgment of hell is removed because sin punishment. is removed. Therefore any punishment of hell is removed. Interesting. And that's called temporal punishment. Yeah. So that's what they call temporal punishment. Yeah. Oh yeah. Strange. I would have thought eternal punishment would have been the better phrase, but better way. Yeah. So I thought temporal punishment was the punishment for venial sins. <clears throat> yeah. That's odd. Okay. So it doesn't say purgatory, <laughs> but it, I, yeah, I, I guess purgatory you, was the temporal punishment. Yeah. So um, I, I simply quoted it at this point. So yeah, that's odd. Maybe it's there's weird. an in-house speak. Maybe there's an in-house distinction I'm not aware of, but I just quoted them. But maybe, yeah, so, I, I, maybe somebody listening to this might know, let us know. <laughs> that's truly, that's truly bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. The next benefit, the infusion of supernatural grace, gifts, and virtues. So infusion of yes. gifts, uh, grace, yeah. the infusion of gifts, and even the uh, infusion of virtues. Yeah, because baptism is for them new birth. You know, it is being yep. regenerated. So Yep. And so the infusion of sanctifying grace renders the baptized adopted and confers the right of heavenly glory. Mm -hmm. So uh, they move. We would probably understand that statement to say infusion of supernatural grace, gifts, and virtues. We would be, we would be hearing sanctification wouldn't we hmm. and in their description and explanation that's the baptized is adopted and confers the right of it to heavenly glory right. category confusion yeah. and that's just typical of the whole way in which their system works itself yeah out. they just they just don't make any effort to separate yeah. those two categories so they are you know the uh, confusion of the transformation on the legal and the instrumentality of water and the absence of faith mm -hmm. well not the absence of the instrumentality of faith there'd be some faith somewhere Yes. Not as we understand it. No. All right. Then there is the conferral of the right to special graces as the next benefit. Yeah. And the special grace of vivification is received unless a hindrance is put in the way. Infants present no hindrance to the referral, the conferring of these special graces. So receive all the grace conferred. So if you want to guarantee that you get all the grace, make sure you get yourself baptized as a baby. Adults can create obstacles by a defect, a defect in matter or form, a, a lack of proper intention on the part of the minister or improper motives in their own hearts or without a proper detestation of sin. You don't have enough contrition. In the last instance, one would be properly baptized, though, so you wouldn't have to be rebaptized, though you wouldn't receive all of its grace. Only through proper penitence would the grace later be conferred. Huh. Wow. So it's not even like 
this is this is enough you got to add to this so this is that typical thing like how many tears are enough in repentance and exactly you know and it's like you know they might as well have said three buckets you know three buckets of tears (laughs) and then you get all the grace i mean it's just you know like again i you know i want to i don't just want to come across like super critical like i mean the I, I, to, to some extent, I understand some of the things they've been saying about, about baptism. I understand some of those things because even though I don't agree with them, I can kind of see how they arise and the system starts to develop and I can see how things are building on that system. And so without you know, wanting to affirm it, I can kind of get it. I can see the mindset of it. But then when you start getting into stuff like this, you just think you are just departing so radically from, um, from even, even the... the you know, the, from even the, the categories that we're sort of using the scriptures as a kind of touch point, you know, and, and it's, it's developing in an area which is just so cruel to people, you know, because you yeah. just never know. No you assurance. Just, you just never know. I mean, like, okay, I've been baptized, but how do I know that's enough? Well, have, have you been penitent enough? Well, how do I know that I've been penitent enough? <laughs> well, I don't know. You just got to keep doing it, doing it until yeah. hopefully you crack it at some point in your life. Otherwise, who knows? You know, it's yeah, just true. All right. Well, uh, let's let's do the last benefit. Yeah. Impression of a character on the soul. In other words, baptism is unrepeatable because it makes an ineffaceable mark on the soul, a holy and indelible seal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's one of its effects. What does All that right. mean? What does that mean, Nick? Tell me what that means. So it's 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 a mark. It's uh, and so this like the baptism is not the only sacrament. <laughs> Well, like the mark of ordination. Right. Yeah. There is a, there's an indelible mark so that there's no need for repetition. Right. Um, all right. 13 minister. So of does that mean, the, hang on a second. Does that mean that someone who's ordained can, can never be unordained? You can never be stripped of your ordination. I, I'm going to answer with the qualified. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because I just heard I, I, I of a guy. I have to remind myself, but there's there is basically a, you know, if you get defrocked, yeah, you you never become unordained. There's st- there's a permanent mark. Right. So you know, there's you. I think you still have this unique relationship to God, and so the you can still be like a conduit of grace. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's bizarre. Because I I just, I mean, I'm laughing, but it's, it's not funny. It's uh, I I heard of a, a Roman Catholic guy. Um, you know, it popped up on my Facebook feed. It was in the news. Some dude in the States had basically filmed uh, a kind of weird pornographic thing on the altar. He had like hired out a Catholic priest had hired like two prostitutes or something and had wow. filmed this thing on the altar of the church. So, so he's been defrocked or whatever. But I mean, the fact that he could in any way still hope to be some sort of special conduit of grace is a, you know, like, dude, there's something very, very evil about that. Very. Yeah. Evil. Well, if it works in and of itself, if, yeah. the, if the sacrament of ordination is applied and you get something permanent done. Yeah. It's just so hard to get. I mean, and again, I'd need to, I'd need to, I'd need to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just remember something at the back of my mind that there's definitely something that that something does like go that. on wouldn't that you wouldn't expect. Me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So let's look next at the minister of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. Now here, the Roman Catholic church would distinguish between the ordinary versus the extraordinary minister of the baptism. Okay. So firstly, the bishop as a successor of the apostles would be the best minister. Second, the priest by virtue of their office and orders when a priest is within his own jurisdiction and likewise with a bishop. So a bishop can't go to another bishop's jurisdiction and take over bishop uh, responsibilities. Right. Same thing with priests. Same, same after the, after the priest. Yeah. yeah. And a priest may be an extraordinary minister when given permission. So those would be the formal, acceptable, right ways of doing baptism. Bishops, right. priests, and deacons when mm-hmm. permitted. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tertullian indicates this order along with others who stress the importance of the approval of the bishop and the priority of the baptism by the bishop whenever the bishop is present. Um, Any person in extreme situations can be an extraordinary minister as long 
we've said this before, is they pour the water while pronouncing the proper form with the proper intent to baptize them as the church does. Mm. Okay. So all of that stuff has to be in order. So I think you use the example of, you know, we baptize you versus I baptize you. That may be an improper order and it's not, if it was accidental, it would have been accepted, but if there was a particular intent, then it wouldn't have been accepted and, you know, disputes and stuff come up. So here's, here's, here's the order. A priest is to be preferred to a deacon, a deacon to a subdeacon, a cleric to a layman, a man to a woman, unless propriety demanded. In other words, if, if a baby is in distress mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. necessary that a woman go in instead of a priest mm-hmm. and parents should not baptize unless the infant is in danger of death. Right now here's a, here's a little oddity. The person doing the baptism contracts a spiritual relationship with the one they baptized and marriage between them is forbidden unless by special dispensation. Interesting. So you become like a parent. <laughs> wow. That's so a, a special relationship is contracted. And so marriage becomes forbidden. I don't know if that has to do with priestly uh, vows and stuff like that, but it's, it's just super weird. That's odd, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, you can kind of see how it might arise, you know, because normally the person doing it would be of a certain age, I guess. And, and we probably have a certain relationship within the family, but that's not really the point that it's making. Is it? It's saying no. actually it doesn't matter who you are or how old you are. You become like a spiritual father or something. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next point, the recipients of baptism. Uh, here's the fun stuff. Here's a quote. Every living human being not yet baptized is the subject of this baptism. For God seeks all people everywhere to be saved and therefore they are to be baptized. Note, this is not by virtue of believing parents, but because of the command to baptize all nations, which warrants it. Okay. Wow. So if you could baptize every single baby as soon as it's born, that's a good thing. Interesting. So adults, of course, are implied in the universal command of the Great Commission. And then what would be required is their faith, their consent, proper penitence, and all the the things necessary for a proper submission to baptism. Yeah. Yeah. All infants must be baptized by virtue of the absolute nature that only by water and spirit can anyone enter the kingdom. Also, by virtue of the fact that Christ invited children to himself. Also, by virtue of the fact that baptism replaces circumcision. Also, because of the practice of household baptisms and because of the antiquity of the teaching. Okay. Now, is this, that, that particular point, is that like a post-Vatican II point? Or is this describing... The... This, is, this is prior to Vatican II, yeah. Interesting, because it does sound, I, I was listening to uh, a Reform Forum thing on Col Rana, um, and it does sound a lot like, like Rana's thinking, which, you know, arguably shaped Vatican II quite a lot. So, um, but maybe it was always there. Wow, that's, that's crazy. So it is just basically, if you're a human being, you should be baptized. Yeah. And there's no, there's no connection at all to, to faith anywhere there. <laughs> exactly. It's, it, right. it is just a, it's like a whole world apart from our understanding of baptism. On the issue of faith in infants, it just goes on to say this. In response to the charge that infants must have faith, theologians yeah. respond that the infants have habitual faith, which is infused into them by the sacrament of regeneration. Right. Yeah. Well, again, so they get I, given the faith. So faith's there, but it's, it's, it doesn't have to come before. As to actual faith, they believe on the faith of another. Augustine said, listen to it. He believes by another who sinned by another. He He believes by another who sinned by another. Right. So what he's doing there is he's taking the federal representative uh, uh, obedience or disobedience of Adam, and he's equating the parents' faith and putting them in a federal role to daddy, rather rather than from Adam. So his covenant covenant theology is screwed up. So. uh, And that's caused a world of pain. 
Yeah. But in the, on the other hand, you kind of feel like there's, there's a kind of, uh, you know, I sometimes feel like this, even when I'm talking to reformed, you know, pedo Baptists who will say things, you know, to me about, Oh, well, you know, how can you deprive them of the right to be part of the church community? I'm like, listen, you know, and, and at what age would you, would you then determine it's, it's a good age for them to be baptized? And, you know, obviously it's upon credible, credible profession of faith, but the, but the whole point about, Oh, well, um, you know, it's so silly you making these kinds of distinctions as to needing to have, how do you know they have faith and when they don't have faith and when their faith is true and what happens to that? And I'm thinking, well, if that's the case, then you should just go out and baptize everyone. And it's like, at least <laughs> the Roman like, Catholic. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Good point. We're going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't exactly. they go out and do that? Why don't they just, you know, just stand up with a water pistol and just, you know, you could do some sharpshooting from a distance. Like if you really believe that, you could make more of an effort to get it done. There are, there are some little qualifications that will come up later as to explain okay. why they're not just like serial baptizers walking yeah. around and dunking people, you know? Yeah. So, uh, okay, good. Good. Um, they've thought of it. So they go on to say this, any infant who is baptized mm-hmm. automatically becomes subject to the law of Christ and is now oblig- obliged to keep it. But of course, their obligation is in keeping with their ability, depending upon their age. So you're, you're putting law on them by baptizing them. You're putting obligation upon them. You're saying, here is a covenant of works and you must now keep it. Mm. We're imposing this burden upon you. Yeah. Um, uh, Gregory of Nazianzen was uh, an exception. He advised delaying baptism until a child was three years old when the child could make a reasoned response. Wow. So, it's a young reasoned response. <laughs> he must have yeah. had different sorts of three-year-olds. My yeah. three-year-olds chewed Lego. I don't yep. know what his three-year-olds were getting up to. All right. The next uh, recipient of baptism, unborn infants. So this is in the case of a difficult delivery where the uh, part of the baby is reachable with water of, uh, by some means. If the head can be reached, baptism is applied absolutely. In other words, this baptism won't have to be repeated. Mm-hmm. But if, if, if another part of the body can be reached, then it is to be applied conditionally and must be repeated, if possible, la- uh, later, if the baby survives. If the baby doesn't survive, the conditional baptism will stand as actual baptism. If the mother dies and the baby's still inside and the baby has to be extracted and there is an uncertainty as to whether the baby is alive or not, then this, this, this conditional baptismal formula must be used. If thou art alive, I baptize thee in the name, mm. etc., etc. If a baby is severely deformed, then this conditional form of baptism must be used. If thou art a man, a human being, I baptize thee in the name, etc., etc. Oh, that's quite harsh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, it was surprising because, you know, the Roman Catholics are insistent that even deformed people are in the image of God and yeah. they shouldn't be aborted. But, uh, yeah, there that you go. That is uh, odd. I mean, that must stem back to a a sort of, pre-scientific belief somewhere surely perhaps perhaps it's a an, an, a carryover all right then we have insane people so the perpetually insane who have never been sane are in the same category of as in as infants listen okay. to this one if they were once sane and become insane then baptism if applied while they're insane would be invalid but an argument could be made for a conditional baptism, trusting that they would have desired it. Right. Okay. Whoa. So it's just like, you know, <laughs> oh, optimistic. Man, we're just optimistic. You know, imagine <laughs> that your dad or your mom and you're like, you're trusting in this baptism and the priest is optimistic and you're like, well, I don't think they really would have. Yeah. <laughs> But it's also harsh because, like, if, like, they, I don't know, like, just because they, just because their mind, their cheese slides off the cracker, doesn't mean that, like, their souls are therefore damned, you know? Exactly. Like, it just, yeah. it's just such a, it, like, yeah, it's, 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 it's strangely optimistic, but strangely yeah. cruel as well. I, I don't, so they, I think, they're holding out, they're holding out for a baptism of desire at that point. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. All right. Then the children of Jews or infidels. Mm. 
if the bat, so yes, unless it is unwanted by the parents. If the parents don't want the child to be baptized, then it shouldn't be done because of the risk of the child one day being turned against the truth. But if it is done, it is still a valid baptism. Okay. Yeah. So if you've got a family of Orthodox Jews and the midwife's a Roman Catholic and she does a sneaky baptism on the baby, mm-hmm. that baby is baptized. I can't remember which uh, Pope did it, but there is a, an example in the past. I just listened to an audio book on Vatican I, the Ultramontane Council. And uh, he, uh, the story was told of a Pope who took a baptized baby out of a Jewish family and raised them Catholic away from their family. Hmm. because it had been baptized wow and that was good well didn't they uh, i mean wasn't this the case during the um during the troubles in ireland wasn't there a thing where basically they would kidnap kids and, ra- and baptize them and raise them catholic because uh, there was uh, i'm Not trying sure. to remember the details there was something about this quite recently um and it was just basically a way of, of producing, you know, Roman Catholic supporters and soldiers, basically. And I, I, yeah. it may not have been the troubles, to be fair. It may, it, may have been, it may have been something to do with the states. But, yeah, there was something that, like that that happened quite recently. So it's that obviously like been a bit of a strategy in the past. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as for the uh, children of Jews, so for the children of Protestants, you know, do it unless the parents don't want it. Uh, in fear of that, it... Uh, will be undone later on. And then infants of consenting non-Catholic parents. Yes. If there is a hope of the child to be brought up Catholic. Mm. So if you've got a bunch of non-Catholics who are willing for their child to be baptized, then you almost have to get to get a pre-commitment that they'll get sent to a Catholic school, go to Catholic church, make sure they get confirmed at a particular time, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And should you baptize the dead? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, that's encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The adjuncts of baptism. We're at point 15, second last point. So these are all the uh, paraphernalia attached to baptism. Mm-hmm. So firstly, the baptistry. Yes. Baptism really is to be done in a church unless not possible. Okay. And by church, they mean the building. Yeah. In a sanctified ground, consecrated ground. Mm-hmm. In a railed off area with a font of solid materials. So a blow up pool. Probably not legit. Okay. There should be a representation of John the Baptist baptizing Christ, adorning it. And the cover of the fonts uh, will usually contain the holy oils. We'll talk about those in a moment. And it should be kept under lock and key. Secondly, the baptismal water. The water must be consecrated on Holy Saturday or the eve of Pentecost. This is done by signing the water with the cross, dividing it with his hands, and casting it to the four corners of the earth, indicating all nations. The priest then breathes upon the water and immerses the Pascal candle in it. Then after that, he'll pour first the oil of the catechumens and then the sacred chrism. Then both oils together saying appropriate prayers. Okay, so this is all consecrating the, the water. I'm seeing, I'm seeing cauldrons and boiling water. <laughs> yeah. Okay, go on. If the consecrated water is running out, let's say you have baby after baby being born. Yeah. You can dilute it adding normal water, but you're only allowed to add uh, the smaller amount of new water, not the, not the consecrated yeah. water. Right. If the water is putrid, it must be replaced. All right. Holy oils. The oil of the catechumens is purely olive oil. The oil of chrism is balsam and oil. These are consecrated by the bishop on Maundy Thursday. The oil is applied to the crown, not the forehead. Hmm. That's always been my mistake. I keep going for the forehead. (laughs) Sponsors. Sponsors assist at baptism, making profession of faith in the child's name. They will stand in the place of parents to teach faith and morals. One is sufficient, though if two, one should be male and another female. They must be adults of good reason, approved by the priest and the parents. They must physically touch the child during the ceremony. They should intend to carry out their duties, and it is better if they themselves are confirmed. 
Those who are of religious orders, priests and so on, spouses, parents, infidels, heretics, the excommunicated or public sinners are forbidden as being sponsored. And sponsors must also be used in adult baptisms. Right. right. Are these right. what we call godparents? Is this, is yeah. this what? Yeah. Yeah. So what, did, what does the sponsor do? What, what's, what's the god? Well, basically, the if god your parents die, they, they promise to stand in the parents' stead. Right. Okay. Yeah, one song. I thought there was something more to it. I thought there was some sort of witchcraft in there somehow. <laughs> no, is it just that? You just, you just. Uh, kind of... Well, that, that's the main thing. There may okay. be other teaching responsibilities, but that's the main thing. Okay. All right. So, baptismal name. This is an ancient practice. The role of the priest is to ensure that obscene, fabulous, and ridiculous names are avoided. So, you sh uh, they'll make sure that the kids aren't called fish and chips. Um, okay. Okay. Names of saints are to be recommended to the parents. If parents are obstinate, the priest can add a middle name of a saint to the huh. child's name. Okay. So right. overriding parental authority. Yeah. There you go. Saint Cleopas. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Baptismal robe. Yeah. The ancient practice was a white robe, probably due to the fact that robes were worn on the feast days when baptisms ordinarily occurred. So that mm. became a church practice. The modern practice is to put a white veil on the head temporarily as a substitute for what was once the baptismal robe. Mm -hmm. All right. I was thinking, I so was watching are... Lord of the Rings yesterday, and I was thinking that we should replace all liturgical dresses with like Gandalf robes. Because yeah. a they're a bit more masculine, and they and just bra look, and braided beards, braided beards as, as preachers it just, gowns. It just looks better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, small suggestion for the Catholic Catholic Church. They can do it. They like. Right. Here's yeah. our last point: the ceremony of baptism itself. So I'm going to read word for word what this what the encyclopedia says. Are you ready for it? Yeah, as long as you don't baptize me in the process. Because no, no, don't worry. There's okay. no water involved, so it's not legit. Okay. So here we go. And I quote, the rites that accompany the baptismal ablution are as ancient as they are beautiful. The writings of the early fathers and the antique liturgies show that most of them are derived from apostolic times. The infant is brought to the door of the church by the sponsors, where it is met by the priest. After the godparents have asked faith from the church of God in the child's name, the priest breathes upon its face and exercises the evil spirit. Then the infant's forehead and breast are signed with the cross, the symbol of redemption. Next follows the imposition of hands, a custom certainly as old as the apostles. Some blessed salt is now placed in the mouth of the child. When salt, says the Catechism of the Council of Trent, is put into the mouth of the person to be baptized, it evidently imports that by the doctrine of faith and the gift of grace, he should be delivered from the corruption of sin, experience a relish for good works, and be delighted with the food of divine wisdom. Placing his stole over the child, the priest introduces it into the church. And on the way to the font, the sponsors make a profession of faith for the infant. The priest now touches the ears and nostrils of the child with spittle, the symbolic meaning is thus explained. His nostrils and ears are next touched with spittle and he is immediately sent to the baptismal font that as sight was restored to the blind man mentioned in the gospel, whom the Lord, after having spread clay over his eyes, commanded to wash them in the waters of, of Siloam. So also he may understand that the efficacy of the sacred ablution is such as to bring light to the mind to discern heavenly truth. The catechumen now makes the triple renunciation of Satan, his, pomp, his works and his pumps, and he is anointed with the oil of the catechumens on the breast between the shoulders. On the breast and between the shoulders. On the breast, that by the gift of the Holy Ghost, he may cast off error and ignorance and may receive the true faith, for the just man liveth by faith. On the shoulders, that by... By the grace of the Holy Spirit, he may shake off negligence and torpor and engage in the performance of good works, for faith without works is dead, says the Catechism. The infant now, through its sponsors, makes a declaration of faith and asks for baptism. 
The priest, having meantime changed his violet stole for a white one, then administers the threefold ablution, making the sign of the cross three times with the stream of water he pours on the head of the child, saying, at the same time, so and so, I baptize thee in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The sponsors during the ablution either hold the child or at least touch it. If the baptism be given by immersion, the priest dips the back part of the head three times in the water in the form of a cross, pronouncing the sacramental words. The crown of the child's head is now anointed with chrism to give him to understand that from that day he is united as a member to Christ, his head and engrafted on his body, and therefore is called a Christian from Christ, but Christ from chrism. A white veil is now put on the infant's head with the words, Receive this white, white garment, which mayest thou carry without stain before the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ, that thou mayest have eternal life. Amen. Then a lighted candle is placed in the catechumen's hand, the priest saying, Receive this burning light and keep thy baptism so as to be without blame. Observe the commandments of God, that when our Lord shall come to his nuptials, thou mayest meet him together with all the saints and mayest have everlasting life and live forever and ever. Amen. And then the new Christian is then bidden to go in peace. So exactly as it is in the New Testament. <laughs> From <laughs> earliest apostolic times. Yeah. Man, the pageantry, hey? Wow. My goodness. Yeah, that's exactly what happened to the eunuch, you know? Uh, to be fair, it wasn't an infant baptism, but that didn't yeah, happen in the New Testament, did it? And there are, there are a few differences between uh, adults and infants. So that was the infant. Yeah, okay. Well, man. So the adult would have to do a few kneelings and a bunch of other stuffs. No wonder priests um, have to train for so long. I mean, my goodness. And you get any of that wrong and it's like the whole... <laughs> yeah, any of that wrong and I don't know, the whole thing's called into question. I guess yeah. the main bit that you have to get right is the I baptize you and then yeah. the pouring of water. But, you know, still, yeah, it's a lot of pressure. Whoa. A lot of pressure. Cool. And then the last, very last point, metaphorical baptism. And this would be the misnamed bat baptism of bells and ships. It's not really baptism. And that's all they say about that. <laughs> What's up? Oh, at least on that, we can agree. Hey, <laughs> and there you go. It's good to end on a note that we can agree on. You know? Bung. <laughs> so Nick just you know okay we've gone through this weird and wonderful world of of catholic baptism right so what, what are your takeaways from this like why why should we even know about this I, I guess we should have maybe asked this question at the beginning but like you know what's the what's the point of us even engaging with this i think it's just refreshing to see to 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 know that the simplicity of the baptism that we embrace is biblical Mm -hmm. And to see what happens when you don't have sola scriptura as your guiding yeah. authority in these things yeah. and how many ways you can go wrong. And that when your confidence is in the, the mechanism of the baptism and how it's conducted, how, how much you have to stress the minutia and the jot and the tittle of yeah. exactly how it's applied. Yeah. Whereas, you know, and, and how much assurance we can have that, you know, by free grace, by faith, we are saved and not by whether something was done correctly to me or if I do it myself or I've got the right priest saying the right words, the right time and the right way. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's like that fable of the, of the, of the guy who, you know, the, the monks who are praying in a temple and then a cat walks in and keeps interrupting them while they pray. So they tie up the cat and, and this goes on for years and then the cat dies. So then they think, well, they can't pray until the sacred cat is tied against the pillar. And then the, they tie the cat <laughs> to the pillar so that they can pray. But then, you know, someone ties it to a different pillar. And so it becomes a tradition that every third week of the month, the cat, the sacred cat must be tied to the pillar on the right. You know, and it's like the complexity just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. It's the opposite of Occam's razor where you're, you know, you're yeah. going to the simplest thing. And I think that is, it's, I, for me, it's, it's the thing. If you abandon solar scriptura, this is where you end up because whatever becomes popular or whatever is mainstream at one point, becomes law for the next generation and it doesn't ever replace anything it just gets added to and added to and added to all the time so the complexity just keeps growing it's never ending um yeah and all because the cat walked into a temple 
<laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think it is refreshing from that point of view. I think it is also good to be conversant with, um, you know, so uh, there's a there's a great podcast with Leonardo DiCirico, and it's about uh, what's it called again? Uh, it's a, it's basically about an evangelical perspective on Catholicism, and okay. the, the point that they make is that if evangelicals aren't informed about Catholicism, they're vulnerable to some of the more attractive elements of it, like its connection to history and, you know, its respect for the, the church fathers. And it's, you know, generally speaking, evangelicals don't really care about anything prior to the Reformation. And then even then we only go back to Augustine, you know, like it's, yeah. it's, we're generally speaking ignorant of the church fathers and some people get, you know, can be wrong footed by that and taken on board, but you have to see where that goes. You know, if you, if you go there, if you go to the church fathers without, um, you know, confidence in Sola Scriptura, without confidence in the reformed creeds and confessions, you're going to end up with this kind of complexity. And it is. Yep. I know I'm a Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear, Nick. Good to hear. Yeah. That one time. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. So should we conclude with a, a prayer to, to Sir Nick? 